welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast today. This is episode number 285, and it's an unscripted show with our buddy Brad Brooks from Argali Outdoors. We speak with Brad about a variety of topics, including the history of Argali, some of the new product developments, but we spend quite a bit of time talking about his fall that's upcoming. Brad is going to Alaska for six weeks. He's going to hunt black-tailed deer on Kodiak, hunt caribou, and moose all in one trip and all with his bow. So we talk about that, his history with Alaska, how he put this trip together, the challenges that he's facing with logistics, and much more. You guys for sure will enjoy this one. If you're listening to the show as it's released here at the end of May in 2021, you have just a few days left to enter the giveaway that we're doing this month. If you leave us a review of the podcast and the app that you're using that takes reviews, that's one way to enter. Another way to enter would be to share this show on social media and tag us at Hunt Backcountry. And finally, you can just send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com with a topic suggestion, a guest suggestion, or anything like that for a future episode, maybe a question for a future Monday Minute. You guys have been awesome about that this month. We have a lot of great feedback, and thanks to that feedback, a lot of good episodes in the works. So thank you. And again, if you have a few days left to enter here in May of 2021, and we'll pick a winner for a $250 ExoMount gift card very soon. All right, guys, let's dive into this conversation with Brad Brooks of Argali Outdoors. Brad, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah, I don't even, I I always fail to do this. I should have looked at the show number of when you were on previously, but I'll be sure to put that in the show notes when we do get this one out there. But I know it's been at least two, three years, I think. Yeah, I know. I think Steve and I have at least each had at least one kid. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, how you yeah. measure everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I want to start with a super random question. I don't know why I thought of this this morning, but I was like, oh, it'd be a funny Fun question to ask Brad. What is the most recent gear item that you've personally purchased? And by that, I mean, you know, you have an opportunity to test gear and like, I know you have like some brand partners and probably get new gear on a regular ish basis, but it's something that like you picked out, threw down your money for recently. What comes to mind there? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I'll preface it by saying that, uh, I actually like to buy my own stuff. <laughs> too. Um, uh, what is something I bought recently? Um, I was also intrigued because just, I mean, you have a long history of hunting. It's not like you need anything, right? So I'm curious, like what made Brad Brooks pull the trigger and buy something? Well, I, I bought, um, I bought a few things recently. Um, I think one of them, one of them is kind of boring um and it probably will only appeal to uh turkey hunters but i bought a pair of avian x decoys okay. um that have been really good uh for turkey hunting this year um yeah that's a great question mark what else did i buy here <laughs> i actually oh i've got one i did uh um buy a vapor trail uh rest okay uh, like they're gen seven I don't even know what model it is like the gen seven uh limb driven rest um 
and I, I really like it actually. <laughs> so, Do they still have that like drop down arm? Wasn't that vapor trail that does that where it comes out from the side and it kind of drops yeah. down? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. The, the vapor trail, like this is not, um, I, I have no affiliation with vapor trail, but like the simplicity of it is what drew me to it. And I had, so I had a, a another brand of rest. I'm not going to a name um, that failed on me twice in, in a six month period. Um, like just didn't, didn't drop away. Um, it was a cable driven rest and I don't know why I didn't switch to limb driven rest for so long. Um, and then, uh, so I switched to, I'm like, I, you know, first of all, I'm getting rid of cable driven rest and for personally, I'm like, it just seems like a much simpler, it's easy repair. And so, and there's a lot of like, probably I haven't tested every model out there, but the simplicity of the vapor trail was just like really intriguing to me. And so, um, started shooting it last year, had one last year that I picked up and then I liked it so much cause I'm, well, I, I haven't had any issues with it. Not that I've tested it extensively, but I'm like, I really like it. Mm. So I, I just bought another one. Mm, nice. when, when you said rest failure, it brought something to mind and maybe this wasn't even a, getting people confused, but was it you that I think a coos deer hunt and you had a rest failure? What was the story there? Like, like a giant coos too. Like That's not like thought, an average yeah. coos. It was like a big coos. Um, just, I, I mean, just like the, um, I was like, you tell the story. It's just like, it's <laughs> just heartbreak. Sorry to bring it up, Brad. Like <laughs> if you're still bitter and sad, I'm no, sorry. I'm not, I'm not bitter. <laughs> I'm just like sad. Cause I can just see this buck. Um, so, uh, the story is like, uh, just, just couldn't get a shot for a long, a lot of days. And then finally, like things kind of came together and there had been a really big, uh, rainstorm, like maybe a day or two before. And so my bow got really wet and, and I made, made what, what seemed like an, an untenable stock on a buck. It's one of those where you like, I'm going to get aggressive, but my, the chances of this working out seem fairly low, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's what I did. And next thing I know, uh, I, I stand up after crawling for a little bit and like, there's a, there's the buck 50 yards in front of me facing like quartering away hard with his head down in a bush, like perfect scenario. Like doesn't know I'm there. I stand up. I have all the time in the world, draw back. And then like the crazy part about the story though, is that as I draw back on this buck, so I've already ranged it. I look uphill. So I'm imagine this buck is in the, is in the bottom of a small draw and I'm on one side of the draw. And as I'm looking down, like aiming down on this buck uphill, I catch some movement. There is a bigger coos buck above this big buck I'm looking at maybe 30 yards above him who also doesn't see me. And it was like, there was this moment where I was like, you know, like, Holy crap, that's a bigger buck. I should shoot that one, but I'm already at full draw. I don't know how far that buck is and I'm not going to guess. So I'm like, Nope, you better just shoot the one, you know, that's like 50, it was 51 yards. And so I just like settled my pin and had all the time in the world felt great. And just, you know, released and heard this like whack, like right as the uh, arrow kind of came out of my bow and the rest um just wasn't didn't fall didn't drop away so i just see this like you know the back end of my arrow just kind of making these big loops and it just misses by a mile 
Um, so anyways, I, you know, maybe if I had, you know, the rest had fallen away, I would have missed anyway. Um, <laughs> I felt great and the shot felt great, but, um, it was definitely like one of those moments where you're like, you definitely don't want your equipment failing in that, in that particular moment. Man, that's tough on a big buck like that. Was that, it sounds like later into the hunt, I mean, you talked about it had been wet multiple days and yada, yada, yada. Did you get a chance to, uh, to fill a tag on that hunt? No, I, I actually, I did. Um, so the, it was late in the hunt. Um, the, the last minute of the last day we were walking out and there was a, like a really small coos buck at like, like 31 yards who was also oblivious to my presence. And he was like, I mean, he was tiny and I, I mean, I went to came to full draw on him just for practice, but I wasn't gonna, I didn't feel like shooting him just cause he was such a tiny little guy. Um, so yeah, I felt like I could have filled that tag pretty easily on that buck, but didn't want to. Um, so anyways, I know I didn't, I, I went home empty handed on that trip. Um, and immediately afterwards went and bought a new rest <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, no doubt oh man that's tough well we we totally skipped an introduction in a background so i guess we should back up a little bit in case there's listeners who uh aren't familiar with you but what's the what's the elevator pitch on who is brad brooks oh i don't know uh a guy, a guy because <laughs> i know you love questions like this brad yeah <laughs> talking about myself um i uh i have a company called argali and uh we do make some gear and and make some uh film content uh and i live in idaho not too far from steve yeah i don't know that i know like your full background because i've you know i've known you for a few years and we run into each other at shows and stuff like that but in terms of kind of like your start in the quote-unquote industry argali originally was kind of a you know, a dealer, a seller, um, not a product manufacturer of your own goods, but, you know, sold boots and packs and other gear, right? That was the start. No, well, the start actually was, goes back more than that. Um, we, we were just a, a content originally, honestly, like there was no company. Um, there was no, like that wasn't really, that was not the intent. Honestly, it was, um, my business partner, Jason and I literally just wanted to make one film like that was the thing there was no like hey we want to have a business and that wasn't it we were simply trying to tell one story and then after doing that um thought that well you know that was interesting like maybe we should tell some more stories um there was no intent to be like a content brand or nor was there i wish i could say like i had a direction and i knew where we were going but i i honestly didn't is my honest answer. Um, and then I think is like, you guys can probably relate. I mean, I, I think just because, I don't know, I don't actually don't know the reason why, but we ended up getting a lot of questions about gear. And at some point I was like, well, maybe there's like a business here in um, just sort of like a curated uh, retail um, experience. And so our got, so we created an online store that was strictly retail um and yeah had like a curated i'd say there's like a curated amount of products we sold and then uh i I honestly didn't really like the retail side of it that much i'm being totally honest 
don't think I've ever admitted it. I didn't like being a retailer. Um, I just felt like we were trying to be like only offer things that we liked and just be honest with people about it. And I think what ha- what I what I realized like really early on was, and I'm sure you guys know this very well, is like people will uh, not not everybody, but I think a lot of people will will like they're looking for the lowest price and there are you know ways to find products like really inexpensively um if you search the internet um and so man this is just like and then there's just like all sorts of problems that go along with being a retailer and i'm like at some point i was like why am i doing this like i didn't get into i didn't want to do this um i I, at the same time i was also like playing around with gear design because i'm i think like you guys i'm very picky about things and generally generally i'm always like just picking apart stuff like how could this you know why is this here why is that there like you could do this differently or this should be this way um just opinionated on gear and i had been playing around with some of our own my own gear designs and that was that was like when we started making game bags and that was kind of a test for me in terms of seeing whether or not we could actually sell our own products figure out how to manufacture them and then sell them. And that was where we got our start. And then we started making knives and um, that's still a large part of what we sell Though we have, you know, a lot of stuff in the works and we have some other things we make now. So like a year from now, we'll have <clears throat> a bunch of new stuff in the works, but now, and then at some point we just, uh, after I, it seemed like our products were uh, doing well enough. I was like, I just want out of the retail game. And so we completely, transitioned out of being a retailer oh like a little about a year and a half ago and yeah and it's been great honestly because <laughs> um, it allows <laughs> you to deal with your own problems not other yeah you know, other companies problems <laughs> essentially <laughs> yeah no yeah it, it's been it's honestly been great to have had i i i'm glad i had that experience so i know what it's like to be a retailer um uh so i, I gained a lot of knowledge from going through it and but i never want to you know just personally for me never want to go back i like designing and making product like i that's i've kind of figured out that's what i like doing and so yeah it's kind of been an evolution yeah yeah i you know familiar with the content you guys have put out over the years and as you said it started with kind of one project and one hunt i'm not aware of what that is specifically what was that first hunt and like what was the did you just feel that that hunt was so cool or so special that you just kind of wanted to share about it or what was really the impetus for like creating content around that hunt specifically? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it like in hindsight, it sounds like, I feel like there's a lot of really good content out there now. And the YouTube, YouTube has just like changed things in a, in some ways in a good way and in some ways a bad way, I would say in the content world. Um, but at the time I, 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 there were very little content that I could, I felt like I could relate to that, that really like captured what I enjoyed about hunting. I would say like Steve, honestly, some of the stuff you guys had put out, like, I like that. That was, it felt real and authentic and relatable. The hunting media, not that long ago. Um, I don't know the average age of your listeners, but it, it's, it's hard to <laughs> go back five years ago to remember that like hunting TV shows, traditional hunting tv shows were the the kings like they dominated the media world and i just kind of felt like most of them i just like they just felt so manufactured and so fake and it was all about 
you know, trying, building up to a kill shot. And, you know, and oftentimes it just, it just felt like this very manufactured, unrelatable experience for your average hunter. And I just never, it just didn't feel like something I could connect with. And I was talking with Jason about my business partner and I was like, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to just like create something that was a little bit more relatable and authentic and real. And so that, that was Chasing Ridgelines was that uh, movie that was about my brother and I sort of mule deer hunting. Um, and I, I, that was, you know, as with that content, I think all the content we still make, I, I'm really making it for myself. Like I'm, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, that or anything else. I wasn't trying to make that for anybody else. It was just for me. Um, and tell a story that I, you know, I thought Jason, I thought was interesting and that's it. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the, the driving force, but I'd say, you know, certainly since then, I, you know, a lot has changed in the hunting media world and YouTube has become, I'd say the, the dominant force, um, followed by maybe Amazon, but I don't know anybody that still subscribes to like cable and watches like hunting TV. Maybe that's still a thing. I have no idea. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about that the other day. Like, I don't know a single person who has the outdoor channel or whatever it is, you know, pursuits, sportsmen, sportsmen. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know anybody doing that anymore. Or if there's even relevant TV shows that still exist, but that obviously 15, 15 years ago, that was everything. It was. Yeah. Well, not even that long ago. It was like, yeah, I feel like it was like even less than that, you know? But yeah, 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 for sure. It, you, you forget how quick that transitions happen because it's, it has been so like, so effective. Like it's such a big dramatic change in a model that, yeah, as you said, Brad, it's like five to 10 years. Yeah. And it, it's like the democratization of content, right? Like anybody with a cell phone, like literally a cell phone can put content on YouTube. And sometimes it like, you know, you get like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people watching uh, a cell phone, you know, a hunt filmed with a cell phone. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, this is interesting. It's just like, you don't have to have the old model too, which was crazy. It's like, you needed big money. And a lot of those like people on the sportsman's channel, I actually, I don't know their entire business model, but it just seemed crazy. Like you had to like pay money to like be on, to like buy space. To buy airtime. Yeah. 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 Yep. And now it's just, it's just totally changed. Um, I think people are just like able to have access. People are able to film content and also just have access to gobs and gobs and gobs of content. And I think there was a time period where, there was it didn't feel like there was a lot of it out there um and now it just feels like there's just gobs of it like i i don't even i can't keep track of who's doing what i don't even try um i don't even watch a lot of hunting content honestly i barely have time to pay attention to our own content um but yeah so anyways it's just been it's been an interesting evolution in the content space yeah i feel like you're at, you're the content that you guys put out is pretty like consistent like um you are who you are. And as you said, you like, you do things a certain way. And part of that's not, I think, chasing the algorithms, right? Because if you look at like YouTube and optimization and trying to like really grow, there's certain things you should do from a content perspective. And that's everything from the type of content, the length of the content, the titles, the, the screen, um, what have I drawn a blank on the name? Like the cover photo, for example, of yeah. the video. Yeah, thumbnail. And, 
yeah. yeah, I don't see you guys like kind of playing that game to optimize, but I'm very curious. Have you seen is your does the, is the reach of your content pretty consistent or are there certain videos or films that have like exploded much more than others? And if that's the case, do you understand why those videos are super popular? Or does some <laughs> of it even surprise you? It's the, it's almost like you are at, you are at you're, you're asking the question that we talk about at like every marketing meeting we have. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't understand YouTube or what's popular. I'll be like totally honest. I don't get it. Um, I feel like some of our best content was, is our turkey hunting content in terms of just like rad shots of like, but no, rad shots of like turkeys and cool stories. And it does like consistently the poorest, um, even though turkey hunting is probably one of the more popular um, ways of hunting in the, in America, a lot of people turkey hunt not necessarily in Idaho, but like across the country, like it's a very popular thing. Um, and yet it does very poorly. Um, and like last year, I think we killed like, we killed 10 turkeys in like two and a half days. So, and, but that's, that content just does not do well, even though the interesting thing about YouTube is like, you know, I think across the board, like your subscribers are not the people that are viewing your content the most. I think it's pretty, common to have like 70 75 percent of your views come from non-subscribers so like you know we we have tried to figure out like how do we how do we get people to like see the content we're putting out and like i don't understand it i i try we, we put some effort into it um but uh i honestly don't understand it i'd say the content that does the best for us is like mule deer and elk hunting anything mule deer and elk hunting related and that's probably just because it's relatable um our frank film continues to get a lot of views even though i put zero effort into it we really didn't put any effort into like keyword optimization or thumbnail optimization we didn't do anything um and i think in some ways that just speaks to the fact that like it, it was just a relatable or not a relatable hunt but it, it was there's something about that story that seems to connect with people and i think in, like the one thing i realized is like the personal stories that accompany the videos are to me, they're important, but I also think the the people watching content like that as well. Um, I wish I could say that people didn't care as much about like the, the kill shots. People definitely care about that. And I hear about it when we don't do them. Um, even though I personally push back against that idea that you have to have that for a good video. Um, I think there is a common, uh, uh, Agree. I don't know if it's an agreement's the right word, but common like understanding or acknowledgement that people that make content is like, well, you gotta have that. You gotta have the kill shot, um, or else. And I, I, I still continue to think that that's just kind of a shallow assumption. Um, and wish then, and I, I don't think that's always the case, but it's certainly we we go back and forth and on whether or not when and if to put it put those kinds of shots in there and for sure it helps increase engagement and views um but i come back to like the content we make like i'm not necessarily making it just to you know get a million views um, we're making it for ourselves and tell a story and a message and that that doesn't garner as much views as like a you know top 20 you know kill shot highlight reel like i don't care I wonder if those same people that like feel a film or video requires a kill shot feel the same way about their own hunts. Like, do they, 
are they personally wrapped up in that themselves? You know, do they miss part of the experience if they're only concerned with that? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't think we're the right guys to discuss it. I don't think (laughs) any of us here are like, you know, that's what it's about. So yeah, I don't think it's a pointless discussion amongst us. Um, What's a, so part of what we want to chat about was Alaska and uh, you've been to Alaska for different species on different trips, but I heard about what you kind of threw together for a plan for this fall. And I was like, holy smokes, this is, this is going to be an awesome adventure. So number one, tell us what the plan is, but two, like what's the background of how did you put this together? Why did you put this together? And I just want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, so I am going to be spending six weeks, roughly, um, just, just a couple days shy of six weeks in Alaska doing what I call, I'm calling like the, the working man's triple crown, which is trying to kill uh, blacktail moose and caribou, which are, you know, the ungulate species you can hunt unguided in Alaska with a bow in one trip. Um, so I will, oh, I'm going to start off in Kodiak in late August, hunt blacktails. Uh, I'm going to fly back to Anchorage. Uh, my family's actually coming up for part of the trip. So my wife and my two girls are coming up. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, just doing some tourist stuff, fishing and you know, Alaska beach type activities. Um, and then I will drive over to the Eastern part of the state and toke and then fly out into the field on caribou. And then I'm going to drive back over to the West part of the state and, uh, pick up some more people and then fly out for an 11 day moose hunt, um, uh, kind of on the Western side of the state. So yeah, it's going to be an like just the, you know, just like the, the windows, the narrow windows of flying into the field for three separate bush flights, making all the logistics work are pretty, it's a pretty tight window when you start adding up the days. And then, um, so yeah, anyways, that's, that's the plan as of now, um, and have everything kind of lined out. Uh, and then the backstory, I, I mean, honestly, I just love Alaska it there's something about it and and you guys have both been and multiple times and i think you guys can both understand it's like one of those places where once you go once you're just if you are the kind of person that likes just experiencing new places and hunting new animals and big wild country i just there's just really nothing on par with alaska and i just uh, yeah so i selfishly wanted to want to spend as much time up there as I can while I can and a hunt like this is it's complicated it's difficult um to pull off it's a lot of time it's a long time to be away from my family it's a lot of time to be away from work so just figuring all those pieces out is very difficult but it to me the um trying to do a, you know all those species in one trip was very it was kind of appealing because it seems very difficult <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a lot to pull off for sure. I was like, how the hell did you pull off six weeks away from the family? Yeah. uh, uh, Bring them up mid, mid trip. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's hard. You know, like it's not, I feel like I'm just fortunate. Like my wife is like a very, very understanding person. I I wouldn't say she's thrilled um, if I'm being honest, but she also is 
understands kind of my um when i get something in my head like i'm probably gonna do it <laughs> and do it anyway why try and talk I'm about gonna, it <laughs> yeah she's she's a lot smarter like she's a lot more like emotionally intelligent than i am about these things um so she she knows she, she i think she understands it. i think honestly it's not the the hardest part is not get you know getting like quote-unquote permission it's really it's hard for me to be away from my kids like i love my kids i love hanging out with my kids oh yeah um and i yeah this is something that like this is like a personal thing but like i think part of my struggle is like this desire to be with my family and also this desire to go on adventures all the time and it's like when i'm on an adventure it's like i miss my family when i'm at home i miss being on an adventure and it's just i don't know it's just maybe the way i'm wired but no, I, uh, yeah, I can 100 relate to that man it's just, okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's you never feel quite content wherever you're at that's for sure yeah i'm working on that steve yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think it's like a healthy balance though um yeah like to feel that right to feel that tension to feel kind of that struggle if you will i think is a it's kind of a healthy thing like if you just if you were gone and flat out didn't miss your family obviously there's something wrong and if you're just content sitting back and you know kind of not challenging yourself not trying to seek out new experiences and things like that i don't think that's a, pl- a good place to be either you know it's just that the whole idea of kind of being out of balance or swaying too far to one side is where there's unhealthy things but that tension in the middle even though it feels like something you wrestle with or struggle with i think is honestly a lot of times a sign of like a good place to be yeah doesn't make it yeah it doesn't make it i know there will be times where i'm out there where i'm like what am i doing out here i'm out here like by myself for like you know a lot you know not by myself necessarily but um i'm out here just like away from my family and and like there's a lot of there's a lot of really good reasons to just to be at home and deal with all the things that are going to come with that and it's a burden it puts a burden on other people when i'm gone it's not like me being gone is stress-free stress-free for our business or my family or any people any of the people around me like it creates a burden and i'm aware of that um and i think that's you know it's important to be aware (laughs) aware of that but um i also like i don't know man i just feel like i don't you only get one go around on this planet and it's like i and this is there's just something in me that's like you got to do this kind of stuff and if i don't i just wouldn't be a happy person (laughs) yeah um so so yeah that was kind of the and then i'd say just the other part of it was just like the idea of doing all those species like and just committing to trying to do it with a bow was also uh it seemed very daunting to be like yeah you can do that um and there's something about the ability of uh, the or being very difficult that made me want to do it even more um so yeah i think it's kind of like it's kind of an it'll be kind of an experiment to be able to do all those species and have all the conditions and situ you know everything kind of line up to make it a potentially a reality yeah so to, to kind of break down the hunts um you're starting with Kodiaks, you're starting with Blacktail, and that's a hunt I know you've done and you guys have content out about. So if guys want to, again, go back to YouTube, you guys have some cool videos from prior hunts there. I know it was early, I believe, when you did Kodiak Prior, but was it August? Was it as early? And was that also with a bow? Or have you, was that your prior experience been with a rifle? 
it's all been everything I've done in Alaska. I've, been, I've only been there twice. I've been to Alaska twice. I've been on a caribou hunt and I've been to Kodiak and it was, they were both with a bow and, or excuse me, they were both with a rifle. And both times I remember thinking, oh, I wish I had my bow with me because I'm in bow range of these animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't, re- I mean, I don't particularly, I don't regret taking a rifle and I, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with it either. Um, I just like challenging myself to do things that are hard, I guess. And so harder, I think, uh, Kodiak will be interesting just cause it's so damn windy there all the time. I don't know. Um, if you guys have been in earlier in the year, just later in the year, but I think just like shooting in that, I mean, it was howling wind pretty much every day I was there. So I just think shooting in the wind is going to be, um, interesting. Yeah. We, uh, when was that? Oh, that was that Nick Sabo podcast, Steve. That was somewhat recent. He was talking about shooting in the wind and he was just talking about lowering everything you can, like getting as close to the ground and getting as wide of a platform, like even in the body. And that makes sense of like, you know, just the same way with arrow, right? Like the less surface, the, the less wind will have an effect, um, on an arrow. And it's the same idea with your body. Like not only is lowering yourself gets you stable, but you're essentially taking some of your presence out of that wind and just getting low. And that's obviously not always possible in Kodiak terrain, especially earlier dealing with more vegetation, right. Where you might have to be up and shooting over something potentially, but, um, yeah, I'm just, once we, he was talking about that, it made me for my own sake, want to re reevaluate and practice more shooting in the wind and just trying different things. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I, I do like practice shooting. I practice shooting in the wind. Um, I just know that uh, my my groups are not as good as they are when it's not. When <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Do you specifically do like a micro diameter arrow, arrow or anything like that? Um, I do, but not necessarily because I'm like, oh, this will fly better in the wind. I just like how they shoot. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I know that they theoretically shoot better in the wind. Yeah. So how many days will you then be on the ground in Kodiak for the hunt? So I think I have five days to hunt in Kodiak and that, you know, if the weather gets bad, I mean, that could change things. Yeah. That's a short window. It's a really short window. Yeah. And and you guys know too, I mean, Kodiak, you could get, you know, weather for, you know, three days of bad weather and no flying is not, um, I think it's not, it's not common in August, but it's possible. Mm, Yeah. And then after Kodiak is when you're meeting up with the family. So if you deal with some Kodiak weather, get out late or things like that, it's not like you're missing the start to the next hunt. Is that right? Yep. That's right. So the only thing I'll miss is picking up my family at the airport, which I imagine they will also miss. (laughs) (laughs) Still important, right? Yeah, that's fun. So you mentioned caribou would be next. And again, you have hunted caribou previously with a rifle. Was it in the same area or the same herd or was your prior caribou hunt a totally different herd or different part of the state? Yeah, totally, totally different part of the uh, state. I uh, hunted uh, up in the Arctic country in the Brooks range previously, which is that barren ground. And this is um, more of that like 40 mile uh, country. So totally foreign place. It's actually, um, I'm actually joining somebody on a moose hunt or there just happened to be caribou. It was actually the only way I could get a 
flight. So I, I started trying to get a flight in like October 1st for next year. And all, pretty much all of the air transporters that I know of were booked up completely for next year. And I, I think it might have, part of it is the fact that a lot of people delayed their trip to Alaska because of COVID. Um, part of it is also that caribou hunting seems to be the most popular thing to do in Alaska for hunting. But man, it was, uh, it was tough to get a flight from anybody. I was looking at doing things like there's like, uh, aside from doing like the hall road, my options were just doing like a straight up DIY, like rent a car in Fairbanks and drive somewhere to hunt. My options were pretty limited in terms of caribou. I looked at doing, uh, hunting caribou on, um, Kodiak, which would have been the easy thing to do, but they're not really caribou, they're reindeer. And so I was like, man, I don't know. I feel like it's cheating. You can't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, so I just, I'm like, and plus I just, the idea of hunting, yeah, it would have been just easy to just stay on Kodiak for a period of time and hunt both. Um, but part of the whole, like part of this trip is just see different parts of the state and try different, you know, hunt in very different country, not knowing what that'll be like. Um, so luckily, um, uh, my friend, Nick Mucci, I don't know if you guys know Nick, but, uh, oh, yeah, you guys might know Nick, Nick uh had a already had a, a spot booked with the air transporter and i was asking him for help on finding somebody and he's like why don't you just come we're going moose hunting and we always see caribou or typically see caribou and so why don't you just come with me so that's um that's kind of how i luckily lucked into getting a spot on an airplane yeah. for uh for september did you have any thoughts of trying to tag team and make that hunt a double and get moose and caribou on that one trip or uh, i did yeah for sure but again i just felt like that would have been just making it easier on myself and who wants to do that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, yeah. it makes sense so let's avoid that right yeah yeah it would be i mean it would be just much too easy to do that um yeah so i i did i, I for sure did on that one I'm like, well, you could do both. But again, it's like, if, if the point of this whole thing was to try and like experience, um, different places in Alaska, not necessarily just like kill things as fast as possible. Um, I wanted to go to three different locations for, for each of the species. You certainly could do that. Um, actually I should, I, I can't remember there are some restrictions in some parts of the states, if I'm remembering correctly, where you, you can't hunt both species in one. You can't have both tags in some units. Um, I can't remember if that was one of them as well, but it honestly never, um, it wasn't a part of what I wanted to do anyway. So it was pretty, pretty easy to not do that. That is such uh, That's one of the awesome things about this trip is not that you're, you know, it's not uncommon, especially on the guided options, right? Like a guy can go hunt, you know, caribou and moose or brown bear and something else. Like you can do kind of combo hunts in Alaska. Um, the guys who go to Kodiak and do goats and deer, like there's a ton of options like that. But the fact that you're separating it and just seeing more country, because obviously we talk about Alaska as a thing, but within Alaska, there's, it's obviously huge. There's diversity, there's different experiences, different, you know, from a terrain perspective, as well as even like different herds of caribou have different behaviors. 
um, things like that. So you're, you're kind of just like getting the, the full plate versus just like jamming everything together, which is neat. Yeah. And I, I certainly think there, there are some like cost efficiencies to doing that for, um, for, for doing that. And I think most logical people would try and do that, but I guess I'm just kind of, uh, interested in, in just making things as difficult as possible for some odd reason. So how many days will you be out of that caribou camping? So I have like, this is going to be the shortest window I have. I think I have four to five days of hunting max. Mm -hmm. Um, I think four for sure. And then, you know, weather there is actually, uh, also a fairly significant concern because I have a pretty tight turnaround to get, you know, all the way back to the Western part of the state, you know, deal with any meat I might have to deal with. Um, and then hop on another plane. So yeah, I think I've got, uh, four days for sure. And optional fifth. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask about the meat thing because it, bouncing around, staying up there for so long, I didn't was logistically like you're trying to get all the meat back to a central point or you basically kind of leaving it with someone in the area of the hunt and then shipping it. I didn't know what the plan was there, but uh, how are you piecing that together? Can you say that one more time? My phone started ringing my cell phone and it connected to my... Oh, no, you're good. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just the, the logistics of meat is really interesting given that you're in these different regions of the state. Are you trying to get everything back to like a central point and get all of it home together from there or how are you trying to put that strategy together just for those practical logistics? Yeah. So, um, that, that's honestly one of the more difficult logistical questions I've been, uh, had to figure out. Um, I, I, so I've done two things to make that easier on myself. I've already figured out, um, uh, a butcher shop that will, uh, hold, uh, hold my meat. Um, so for, I will bring, you know, if I end up killing a blacktail in Kodiak, I will bring that to, uh, Anchorage. And then I have a place there that will, um, uh, just do like a basic, uh, like butcher and freeze, uh, not freeze dry, uh, vacuum seal, um, on that deer and then we'll hold it. And then, um, uh, same thing with caribou. So I will bring it back to Anchorage, have them hold it. And then I, the second thing I did was I became uh, what's called a known shipper with Alaska uh, yeah. airlines. I don't know this if I've is, talked to you about that. Well, I, this is, I just did it this fall with the elk in Idaho. That's how I got my elk home. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. Just from Idaho to uh, back to St. Louis uh, did that for the first time and it was smooth sailing, man. It's, I don't, yeah, it's, it's like the, I don't know why I didn't know about it before. Um, I found out about it by just looking on Alaska Airlines website. And it's a very, it's not that, as you know, I guess it's not that complicated and it's a fairly efficient way to ship heavy, bulky stuff. And so if anybody doesn't know about this, um, essentially, and I don't know, forgive me if you've talked about this, but only briefly. So yeah, feel free to explain. Any, anybody can do this. You don't have to be, uh, a business, um, uh, but essentially Alaska Airlines has a process you can go through an application process and it costs you a hundred or $125. And to, you have to like fill out an application and then verify your address. You have to like pay and the money goes to pay somebody to like come out to your house basically. 
And once you are verified as a known shipper, you can ship cargo um, on Alaska Airlines, anywhere where Alaska Airlines flies. And so, for example, like to get, you know, a few coolers full of meat home, it can be a lot more cost effective um, and easier to ship bulk product rather than having to deal with checking it in the airline, which is okay and fine up to a certain point. But at some point, depending on how many pieces of luggage you have, it can get really expensive and also just really annoying trying to do that at the airport. And especially if you're in Alaska, you're not the only person that's doing that. And so it can just take forever to get through, to get through uh, ticketing because, you know, I don't know, again, when I was in Kodiak last year, uh, on the flight we were on, I, I would say like 90% of the people there had at least one cooler full of something they were taking home. And, you know, you have like rifle cases or bow cases, you have meat, you have your actual luggage, it's just annoying. So um, what I will, what I'm planning to do is after the caribou hunt, depending on what I have, I'll have everything boxed up by, um, uh, um, by the butcher, it'll be frozen. I'm going to put it in coolers. Uh, so I'll just plan to go to Walmart, buy a few coolers, have it all uh, put into coolers. I'm going to drop it off at the airport and have it shipped back to Boise. And then I'll have somebody pick it up for me. So that meat will be taken care of. And then I'll do the same thing with the moose. Um, just use my known shipper ability to just drop it off the airport. And it, it, it is pretty easy. I haven't done it a ton, but when I have, and I, I don't know about your experience, Mark, but it's a pretty simple way to just like ship a lot of weight. So did you register then just as an individual when you mentioned like your home address and all that? Yeah, I just did it as an individual. Okay. Cause I threw in just, you know, registered basically as XO and used uh, the work location there. And it was like really fast for approval. No one came out. So I think the process, yes, everyone can do it as an individual, but I think the process is a little bit more involved being an individual because you're not like an established business presence and what have you but yeah either way um it's a good option and what i found really interesting is you essentially book a flight just like you would you are flying and it's just for cargo so there's a different portal obviously to the your booking freight um but you just see like alaska airlines for example you see their commercial flight schedule you can pick the specific flights, just put in the information on the quantity of the, the pieces and the weight per piece and you get a price up front. And yeah, it's, I was impressed with it the one time I've done it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it actually is like shockingly simple. Uh, just like put in the weight and dimensions of your boxes or your cargo. And then, um, yeah. And then I'm, I'm also using it to uh, ship stuff up there because for that long period of time, just like food, you know, arrows, like everything. I'm shipping as much as I can in advance. I don't have to deal with it at the airport. Um, so anyway, it's a handy little thing. And if you're, I think if you're in it, well, you have to renew it every year, I think, and, or something like that. And if you're, if you're headed to Alaska and you think you might, just, you know, if you're going with some buddies, I think just having one person do that is, could be worth it. If you, you can kind of figure out the cost, whether or not it's worthwhile, but it, I think it is. If you're, if you're going to be shipping like multiple animals back or like an entire moose or multiple moose. Dude, I didn't even, when you mentioned shipping up things up there, food, arrows, et cetera, I didn't think about essentially living off of backcountry food for <laughs> four of probably six weeks, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's been one of the things that I've been really wrestling with because I'm not, you know, when you're moose hunting, it's like I don't need a super calorically dense diet because you're not you're not pound on the ground moose hunting. Um, so just trying to figure out like diet has been a little bit of a chore, and also just you know what do I need? I don't I don't want to just eat bars and freeze dried meals for four weeks. Sounds awful. Um, so yeah, for a week or even two weeks, that's fine. But like, yeah, like four or five weeks, like it's going to get a little old. Um, so anyways, that's, that's something I've been trying to, I've been wrestling with it. I pretty much got it figured out by now. What yeah, are some of the uh, things that you're doing different for this compared to your, you know, average backcountry hunt in the lower 48 from a food perspective? Like what are some of those changes? I'm taking a little bit heavier but real food. So like fruits in, in particular. Um, so dehydrated fruit that I probably wouldn't take on a, um, a normal hunt. So like apricots, like dried apricots from Trader Joe's. Love those things. Um, I'm going to be, I wouldn't pack those on a backpack hunt because they're, they're heavy. So I'll take some of those. And then I'm taking things like uh, miso soup uh, packets which aren't necessarily heavy, but it's a luxury item that I probably wouldn't take normally, but taking some of that for like, um, salt and there's some other like mineral content in there. Um, and then I don't know if you guys have heard of athletic greens, mm-hmm. it's a product, um, I'm going to be trying out on this trip. Um, just to make sure I get some, again, something I normally wouldn't take, but I'm going to take on this trip just to make sure I'm kind of getting some proper nutrition. Um, and then I'm also taking like nuts, like almonds. Like I normally wouldn't pack almonds around, but I'm going to pack. Yeah. So just like a little bit more real food and not entirely dependent on freeze dried meals. You mentioned, uh, the phrase luxury item, which just made me think, is there a Brad Brooks luxury item on a normal backpack hunt? Like, so lower <laughs> 48 or you're going into the Frank is, you know, it's always interesting to me. Some guys do certain stuff and like, I know this doesn't make sense. And I know, you know, for like from a weight perspective or whatever, but like, this is my thing. And so is there a Brad Brooks luxury item? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, too I think my luck, no, 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 not that. <laughs> I just like, I'm just too much of a weenie to pack the weight, I think is the, I think food is my luxury. Food is my luxury item. So I might pack like a chocolate bar. Um, but I don't know. I guess you, it, it's kind of subjective because you could say that a stove, a wood stove, on like a cold hunt is a luxury item, but I consider it kind of necessary <laughs> for my, my mental attitude when it's really, really cold out for days on end. But yeah, I think food, food is like the one thing I pack that, um, could be actually, okay. I take that back. Maybe, maybe my inflatable pillow could be considered a luxury item. I think it weighs in what two ounces. Yeah. So, two, three ounces. Yeah. yeah. That's a luck. That is a luxury item. Yeah, dude. I used to consider that a luxury item, but anymore it's like without it, I just don't sleep good enough to hunt well. So now I'm like, no, it's just, it makes too much sense. Like it literally makes me more capable in the field. Um, not just more comfortable. I agree. But Steve's over there, like no, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I started packing a pillow last year, or the year prior, and those. My biggest, I was messing with the, uh, you know, I'm a side sleeper, and my shoulder would be numb every freaking night, and I just trying different pads and different pads, and then one, uh, then realized that like 
putting a pillow there and supporting your head relieved a lot of pressure from the shoulder. And then it became like, okay, yeah, I'm packing this on every freaking trip now. It's absolutely worth the two and a half ounces. Yeah, I think it's worth it. I got rid of last year. I, um, I didn't take a stove with me for the first time on a late season hunt. I just used our wood burning stove. I didn't take a jet boil uh, or a MSR stove, like neither of them. And that was a bit of a gamble. I thought for a 10 day hunt, (laughs) having never done it before, (laughs) Um, but it actually worked out fine. So I just took like a, like an eight ounce titanium cup instead. And that was kind of a, I was like, I don't know why I didn't try this out sooner. Um, But that worked pretty well too. So I don't know. I don't know what luxury is, but um, it's always personal. it's super personal. And I think I just, uh, I just don't like packing weight around. So, um, but yeah, I guess maybe a pillow. Like I like, I need to be able to sleep and I've frozen. So like a good sleeping bag, a pillow and a good pad are like really, really important. I'm the same way, same way as you, um, Mark. It's like, you just, I just am not, I, I don't know. Maybe I get impatient when you get tired, you start doing weird things that are subconscious. So, um, I try to make sure I get sleep when I'm out there. And so those could be considered luxury items though by some people. Yeah. Are you changing up sleep system at all for Alaska? Or, you know, it it typically comes up a lot from guys who are like, well, is it okay to use a down sleeping bag in Alaska? Um, That type of thing. Um, So have you changed any, whether it's sleep system or just other gear stuff specific that you would highlight as a difference for this trip because of where you're headed versus kind of your standard stuff? Um, yeah, uh, I've thought a lot about it. I, I don't know. No one. Yes. I guess a couple things I'm doing that are maybe a little, the, the, they're a little different. The hardest part I've had, uh, been trying to figure out is like one pair of boots for all the different environments that I'll be hunting in. Like, I'm like, man, so <laughs> I'm, I'm trying out some boots this year, um, that I've never worn before. Um, so I'll, it'll, I don't know how it'll work out, but I'm trying out some Sinead's boots um that it seemed to be kind of the right balance between like a rigid sole but not super heavy but also like i can you know you know slog multiple days of pouring pouring rain out in yeah so that's been one thing um yes full leather boot yeah um and let's see so that's one thing that's probably a little different and then sleep system wise i I am actually running a taking a new a new sleeping bag but i am taking down uh down bag um with me and then just my i'm taking an insulated pad not that i not that i need an insulated pad but that i just know that if it does get cold i'm taking a warmer kind of a warmer bag and i know that i won't have to worry about my pad cause me to be cold if something unexpected happens temperature wise what is Um, warmer for your warmer bag what's the rating on that um, it's a 30 degree bag, okay. but it's, um, it's a feathered friends, 30 degree bag. And I feel like there's just a, like most brands out there, I probably wouldn't take a 30 degree bag. Cause it's, you know, it's like, I, yeah, you guys know it's how very optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I really, I don't know. I, I, those feathered friends bags, again, I don't, I don't have no affiliation with them whatsoever, but been super impressed with them. Um, I had a, uh, one that I used last year down to some pretty cold temperatures that it was like below what it was rated for. And I was comfortable and I'm a pretty cold sleeper. Um, so that was, 
I was impressed with that. So like a 30 degree bag from them with a insulated pad, I feel pretty confident I'll be fine with down to like, you know, 20 degrees or so. So we didn't, uh, we didn't hit any Argali stuff and we're, we're cruising on time, but tell me about, I think the newest thing that you guys have released or is in the process of being released. Cause as you said, you guys started with game bags, you've done quite a bit on the knife side. And then now you've come out with, uh, the, it's called the Kodiak belt, right? It is. Yeah. 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 Well, so yeah. tell us about that. Cause I saw it. And I was like, ah, oh, clever. I like it. <laughs> so the Kodiak belt, it's just a, simple way of describing is it's just a, a belt that can sharpen a knife. Um, you know, as, as you guys know, it's like anytime you can like take something out of your pack, it's uh, advantageous from a weight standpoint and just a functionality standpoint. Um, and as you know, we get asked like, I don't know, at least daily, like what knife sharpener we recommend and like, what, what's a good field sharpener for your knife or what's a good like at home knife sharpener set up so we get that question a lot and i was like well man maybe we need to make like a knife sharpener <laughs> we're gonna make knives but i there's just so many like good field sharpeners out there that i didn't i just didn't feel like if we couldn't make something that was different or unique i'm not going to just make it just because there's a desire for us to have one so um at some point i was like man i feel like i can make a belt with materials that can sharpen a knife um it took me a long time to figure out how to do it, like a really long time and a lot of failed attempts. When you say at some point you had that thought, was there like a moment where it somehow clicked of like put a sharpener on a belt or was it, I mean, do you remember like that hmm, moment? It, yeah, it was like, I don't know, again, Steve and Mark, you guys are both like your guys. I don't know when you have your moments of inspiration, but like 100% for me, it's when I'm hunting, like a hundred, like every time. Um, and there was a hunt where I think I, I was like cutting something up and I think I like wiped blood on my pants, like clean the knife off. And I was like thinking about how and I, I had like a chuck of my leather strop out. And I just remember looking at my belt thinking, like, man, there's gotta be a way to make, <laughs> make a, a cool belt that can sharpen your knife. Um, and so that, that was, but yeah, so there was like a moment when I was like butchering an, an animal, but like what materials and like how to make it. And then, you know, I, I wanted to make it uh, a belt that, you, you know, you'd want to wear anyway. Um, and that fit underneath the backpack and that just like happened to be made of materials that could sh sharpen any knife. Uh, so I wanted to be both of those things. I didn't want it to be a product. People were like, man, that's a great knife sharpener, but it's a shitty belt. Um, I wanted it to be like a, you know, a belt that you would want, even if you didn't care about the knife sharpening components. Um, so just figuring that part out took a while and then just figuring out how to make a buckle that could sharpen a knife just took a long time. And the one thing that we did that is fairly unique is we use like a tungsten carbide as a knife sharpening implement. Um, there really aren't any, well, let me just say like, I'm not aware of any knife sharpeners that use tungsten carbide. Um, and that just took a lot of research. And, um, I just, I'm fortunate to have one of my high school friends, a material science engineer. So I would pester him with questions about materials, um, occasionally. And, uh, they're just trial and error figured out like, man, there's that tungsten carbide can be a really effective knife sharpener. Um, but then like, how are you going to put it into a belt buckle? Cause it's, it's heavy, it's expensive. Um, 
and there's lots of different types of tungsten carbide and just anyway just figuring out all the materials part of it took a long time and then as you guys know just figuring out the manufacturing process and making a product at a price point that people would actually pay for uh, <laughs> just took a long time um and yeah and it has like three ways of sharpening your belt so like we embedded a chunk of carbide in the top of the buckle which is like basically what most people will use it for like 90% of the time. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got some videos kind of explaining it. It might just sound like I'm speaking a foreign language talking about it right now, but um, once you see the belt, it'll make a little more sense. So we've got the tungsten carbide bar, we've got a leather strop on the side, and then on the back of the buckle, you've got a, an embedded plate of diamond grit. Um, and so you can essentially like shape sharpen and hone any knife. So it's a fully functional knife sharpener. Um, if you just need to like touch up your blade, you can do that. If you've got a completely dull blade, you can sharpen it. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's still, you know, a pretty light at about three, three ounce, uh, belt, like all together. But, uh, yeah, it's been, and we, we put it on, we tried something out new, which was like to pre-sell a product, which I've never done before. Um, but that, um, response has been like pretty, pretty incredible on that front. So, so yeah. Um, that's a lot going on all built in there and like having just seen the photos of it, like it remains super streamlined and simple and all that at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it actually, uh, I actually, the, the field testing, I, I've done a lot of field testing of it last year. And then, um, actually with your guys packs this year and it just mirrors the shape of that hip belt buckle. So there's no, like there's no pressure point. So it's a, um, I need to get some samples to you guys so you can test them out, but it creates a really flat profile. So there isn't any like bulge that pushes into your stomach, which is one of the things that always kind of drove me nuts about belts. Yeah. It's kind of a bulgy buckle. What'd you use for like the, the main material of the belt itself? So the belt is, um, uh, it's, it's just like a nylon. It's a blend between nylon and poly, a nylon poly blend. Okay. Yeah. Um, the weave, the weave itself is, it's actually a custom weave we did on the, on the nylon. And basically the way, the way the belt, the webbing is captured, um, if folks aren't familiar with it, you really have to go check it out on our website, but it's like the, there's a two vertical slots on a rectangular piece of aluminum essentially. And the you cut those, we cut those aluminum slots out at um, a fairly sharp angle. And what that does is it bites on the webbing and you need, you have to have the weave, the weave and the stiffness of the webbing just right in order for it to work and not slip. So that was part of what took, you know, frankly, a, long, a while for us to figure out is how to make the, the weave of the webbing, the material and everything just right to get it. So the belt never, never slipped. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, excited to check one out, man. Um, yeah, dude, it's been it's been fun to chat. We obviously covered uh, a lot of ground here, and there's going to be a whole bunch to come from this big trip. So, folks who want to check out, you know, whether it's product stuff you just mentioned, or just kind of follow along to see the content and hear more about all your plans and what's coming this fall. Like, what's where would you point, folks? Oh, I, um, probably just instagram or yeah instagram or a website is probably a good place so argali official on the grams and 
uh, agarlyoutdoors.com is our, our website URL. Cool. Right, man. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun to make this happen, man. And we'll have to get you on and tell some stories after the fact. Yeah. I look forward to it and look forward to hearing about your guys' coming Alaska adventures as well. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one. Don't forget to go give Brad a follow and follow Argali, both on social media as well as YouTube, and see all the content that's to come. And obviously, a lot will be coming from Brad's fall in Alaska and that big six-week hunt for those species. As always, we appreciate your feedback and your support of the show. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive future episodes automatically. And again, you can also email us directly to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.